Have you ever dreamed of one day owning your own business, but just don't know where to begin? Then you've tuned into the right show. On All Things Franchising, you will hear from top national franchisers, successful franchisees, attorneys, CPAs, and others who support this fast-growing business model. So grab a cup of coffee and pen and notepad, because you will want to capture the invaluable information you hear on today's show. And now, here is your host, Linda Ballesteros. Hey folks, welcome to All Things Franchising. This is Linda Ballesteros. I am your host today. Thanks so much for finding some time in your busy day to spend with me. Um, I recently read an article that said, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 20% of new businesses fail during the first uh, two years of operations, and, um, and roughly one half of all businesses don't survive past five years. So I thought that was really pretty telling statistics there. And so we're going to talk a little bit further today with uh, my guest, Tom Matson about this. And Tom has started some 89 businesses of his own. Eight of those saw seven-figure and beyond earnings. His personal coaching clients have generated more than $100 million in sales in dozens of industries. So please help me in welcoming Tom to the show. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show today. Hi, Linda. Super excited to be here. Thank you for that. Uh, pretty dismal statistics. You know, the crazy part is the U.S. Small Business Administration has been tracking that data for for now over 25 years. And in six years, it's 62.8%. And it hasn't changed over 20 years. Yeah. I mean, that's basically two out of three businesses in six years. So yeah. I always say to an audience when I talk to entrepreneurs, if you're the one surviving, the person on either side of you isn't. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Like, that's absolutely. a pretty big, and it's, you know, worse in the restaurant space, worse than some, obviously better than some others. But it's, uh, yeah. it's a statistic that a lot of people don't want to talk about it. And did you know they tracked it for one, one I guess it was one six-year period, the U.S. Small Business Administration tracked the franchise failure rate separately mm-hmm. for the first time. And I got my hands on the source data because when I heard it, I went, uh-oh, this is controversial. Uh, this is, I want to get the data. I want to get the data to see if someone was spinning it. 64.1% of franchises that six-year period had failed. So it was actually slightly higher, basically the same, mm-hmm. but slightly mm-hmm. higher. Mm-hmm. And, and as yeah, you and know, sure you know the industry are... that you and I love. Yeah. yeah. But I'm, I am sure that in the last, couple of years, taking consideration that, uh, folks, if you're listening to this recording, it's September the 20th, uh, September the 30th of 2021. I would imagine those numbers skyrocketed last year, don't you think, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Anecdotally, we've seen all sorts of evidence, and depending on the sector, some sectors thrived, of course, with the chaos, mm-hmm. but most, most either, my, most either were neutral or had serious challenges. And you know, the right. restaurant space is a good example. Um, I, I heard a stat. I live on a, a small island near Vancouver, and the uh, the provincial uh, restaurant association came on about a month ago and said that the average restaurant tour, the debt they took on to stay alive. Uh, will take them seven years to pay off. Oh, my goodness. Just the debt they took on to stay alive. So that's not, like, that's not improving. That's not, you know, getting their kids going to college or, you know, buying a a second home or any of those other things that hopefully entrepreneurs can can accomplish. This is just paying off the extra debt they took on. And and these are the ones that survived, right? These aren't the ones that closed because I bet you they weren't filling out the survey. (laughs) Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Tom, tell me a little bit about your background and how you've worked with businesses, you've launched businesses. So what has been your secret all this time? Well, I appreciate the question. I, I 37 years, I've basically gone through three eras, three sort of stages, big stages. The first 10 to 12 years, I help people start businesses, bricks and mortar, uh, retail, 
service businesses, you know, what, what uh, I now lovingly call real businesses, <laughs> not a cyber business, and mm-hmm. uh, especially did a lot in the restaurant and the cafe and the coffee bar space, uh, the retail clothing space, and, uh, you know, real businesses with real effort, people's dreams on the line. And I did that for over a decade, loved it tremendously. And then as I did that, I would have certain clients that would say, I want to take this concept. Someone's asked to buy a franchise or I want a franchise or I'm thinking of franchising. And uh, it all started, you know, my interest in franchising started from clients wanting to do that. And as I got more immersed in the industry, uh, I look back and about half of my clients that hired me to help grow their sales, because I would do startups and I would help existing businesses grow over that 10, 12 years. But half of them were franchisees. Uh, I didn't, you know, know that as a as a term really back then. I just knew there was a brand on the front sign, and you know, for me it was it was uh, originally it was just sort of well, isn't isn't the franchisor helping with that? And their response to a person was, you know, whatever they help with doesn't work, or you know, we tried it, doesn't work, it's not uh, enough, mm-hmm. not enough, yeah, whatever mm-hmm. it was. It was basically I, I'm not waiting for them. I need this. I need this solved. And I would get in, and I got very, very good at generating sales quickly. So we would, we would turn these around in 30, 60, 90 days maximum and get them back on their feet, uh, which was great. I loved it. It was very lucrative for them, very lucrative for me. But it, it, like more and more people approached me about, well, I want to take my business, and I want to franchise mm-hmm. it. You know, frankly, most of the people that approached me, this is the sort of the next 10 years, were not really su- suited to be a franchise. You know, mm-hmm. franchise used to mean something, right? You know this. You've been mm-hmm. in this space a long yep. time. If you had the franchise for something, it was something really special. Mm-hmm. It meant something special. And then, you know, it became simply a way to self-fund your growth. And some franchisors took that as an opportunity to, uh, shall we <laughs> shall we say, focus on their benefits more than their right. clients' benefits, anyhow. Right. And uh, so I would talk people out of franchising left, right, and center, and then occasionally a concept would be like, now this is unique. This is different. Let's go for it. And so for 10 years, I helped early stage or startup companies franchise in, in what now the industry calls emerging franchises. Uh, and I focused entirely in that area. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then the last 10 years, I shifted sort of a subset of that where I realized I didn't want to just help people make money. I wanted to help people make a difference making money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I now call myself chief movement maker, and I mm-hmm. seek entrepreneurs that, that are wanting to create a movement, that really want to make a difference in the world, that want a legacy, and want to get paid for doing it. Sort of mm-hmm. that perfect combination of doing good and making money, and we do that a number of different ways. We can talk a bit about that. But so I, I went through sort of three eras, and when we hooked up, and you, you know, you were telling about your franchise experience. I'm like, good, bad, and ugly. I got the stories. Let's talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> done right, it's an incredible way to grow. It's an incredible business for people to invest in. Uh, and you know, done wrong, it can be pretty dramatic and pretty catastrophic. Well, you know, and, Tom, and, uh, as a I, as a consultant, I have some of the information uh, from the FDD, you know, the franchise disclosure document. Yeah. And as I'm looking for concepts for my clients, I am shocked at how many of those brands have a retention of less than fifty percent. Now, yes. Tom, I'm not going to show uh, a prospective client um, any brand where they have a greater than 50% chance of failure. So people that yeah. think that they can just go out and do it on their own, it, it, to me, it's, um, it's just going into it blindly because they don't have the information that they need. And the franchisor is not necessarily going to point out that particular line in the FDD. Hey, be sure to check out that most of our, our franchisees fail at this. Um, so well, and that's the working, challenge, right? Is that they right. they don't uh, they don't they they create the situation where they have to, if not not talk about it, at least sort of dampen it or justify it or. And, you know, we all know there's two sides to every story, and so we can, you know, we learn, well, there's a different point of view. But, you know, from my perspective, it doesn't have to be that way because a good franchisor, and you know good ones, I know good ones, a good franchisor mm-hmm. will be very open about their weaknesses, mm-hmm. very open about their flaws, 
and make sure, you know, my philosophy when I was a franchisor was I'd rather you find out the bad news before we did business than after. Yeah. Plain and simple. Because if you find out after, you're going to think I was hiding it from you. And and right. maybe I was if you found it after, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it'd be different than saying, hey, honey, let's go on a date. By the way, I fart a lot. You know, I'm not saying like stupid. <laughs> or by the way, I'm married. Right? You know. Uh, so that yeah, or by the way, I'm married. Like, that's a reasonable disclosure. <laughs> that one's a reasonable disclosure. I would call that a reasonable disclosure. I think most uh, attorneys would agree. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that's the challenge is that is that and – then, and then you really hit it upon it, right? People go out to buy a franchise – and they don't normally hire someone to help them uh, or uh, they just pursue a franchise broker and the mm-hmm. franchise broker, uh, you know, their job is to sell you something, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. their job. And, and, you know, there's good and bad in every field, including that right. field. Um, and the good ones take real care and make sure it's a good fit. And it's, you know, both parties are a win-win and all that, but there's also a bunch of people who, will tell you, and I'm sure they've told you, you know, hey, if they fog a mirror and the check clears, they're approved. Yep, yep exactly. Right? Exactly. And the old classic screen and qualify on its head. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, mm-hmm. that's probably not the best way to recruit your franchise owners. I'm just saying yeah. it's probably not yeah. the best. You know, um, I am so very different than, and I run my practice very different than other consultants because um, once, once my clients um, – secure and decide they sign the contract with the franchise franchisor I stay on with him them for the next three months as their coach because it's a relationship for me it's more of a relationship it's it's more than transactional and you know I'm not in it just for the check Tom I'm I it there I have to see that someone wins and that they've got all the tools to win. And just like you mentioned earlier, not all franchisors provide the information, provide the training to, for the franchisees to get out into the community and do what they're supposed to do. So it's yeah, simple things yeah. like networking. Good for you. It's just simple things. Um, so, you know, when Well, when they're cuz they're building their own business too, right? Even exactly. if there's a proven track record, even if there's good systems in place, they're still out building a new business, and part of that new business is, you know, I, I like to describe it as our job as entrepreneurs is to create raving fans. Mm-hmm. Not happy clients, that's like that's survival. If you don't have happy mm-hmm. clients, you don't survive. Uh, we're mm-hmm. not talking survival, we're talking thriving and and right. you know, you a good example from what you've just said you know, you're the first person I've heard that. And I probably 300 people that do the general sort of work you do over the last couple mm-hmm. of decades. You're the first person I've heard who actually is proud about that and builds it in their, their business model. Yeah. Why are you like, you know, I'm just thinking right now, I'm going, why are you the only one I've heard that from? It's like, well, it's like, it shouldn't be that rare. It, it should be the norm be. almost. Right. 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 I'm not yeah. selling used cars, you know, so, but I have had, well, and yet um, the, I've had other brokers and consultants say, Linda, you just need to cut the ties and move on. You're spending too much time with them. And I don't think I understand that. You're building trust, though. Well, and I also know, I spent 30 years in banking, so I know, and you've probably seen this, people coming out of corporate don't necessarily, I don't care whether they were an SVP or, um, or, you know, have that title, in a corporation, they don't necessarily know how to run a business, do they, Tom? In fact, I, actually, my experience and having worked with over 10,000 startups now is the people that come from a senior uh, corporate position are some of the worst people when they mm-hmm. first start yep. because they think they have all the answers because in their previous profession, they did. They did have all the yep. answers. That's why they rose to that level of success. And so the most dangerous thing an entrepreneur can do is think they have all the answers, number one. And then the second thing, and this is so – I'm so glad you're bringing this up. The second thing is, you know, to become a senior VP in a major corporation, you have to make yourself absolutely indispensable to the company, <laughs> right. right? That's right. your job. Make yep. yourself so indispensable they can't survive without you, which is why they promote you and so on. Well, as an entrepreneur, that's the last thing that you want to do is make yourself the center of your business because then, as I call it, then you're the small business owner 
working in it, in it, in it, like Michael Gerber would always say, doing it, yeah. doing it, doing it, instead of working on your business. And so the, the, that successful corporate person is actually at a disadvantage over just about any other category I've worked with. And I've worked with dozens of categories of new entrepreneurs because, you know, if someone doesn't have that experience or doesn't have the wisdom or knowledge, they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think I should do? They're yeah. open to asking questions. They'll ask people like you or me. They'll ask, you know, they'll even ask their banker or their lawyer, which I know I don't recommend you get bank, you get business advice from bankers or you get business advice from attorneys, but, you know, get, get legal advice from them, get banking advice from them. Right. If you choose for sure, get business advice from business people. Absolutely. And if you're not open to asking for it, good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're going to try to figure it out, it's so yourself. fascinating. I got to share a quick a quick story yeah. about that because today I was with uh, my son. We popped into Costco to pick him up some stuff. Uh, yeah, I live on a small island outside of the big city, so when you go to the big city, you always visit Costco, right? Stock up, get supplies, yeah. as we like to say, and uh, went in. And uh, outside was a van for a cheesecake supplier. And that company was an old client of mine years ago and run by a retired colonel from the Israeli Air Force, of all things. And and his name is Doron Levy. Doron Levy. I remember distinctly. I haven't talked to Doron in 20 years. And I know that, that he expanded and opened up a bunch of locations. And one of the things he was famous for was the best cheesecake in Vancouver. He would win all these awards. And there he was. It wasn't him. It was one of his guys. But the big truck with his sign on it, delivering to Costco a truck oh, full of cheesecake. Goodness. And I'm sitting there going, how awesome is that? Yeah. 20 years yeah. later. I haven't seen the guy in 20 years. And there he is. And I was like a proud papa. I was like oh, almost wow. teared up to see this van <laughs> outside Costco, Linda. I love it was it. crazy. But here's the thing. He was a he was a, a, a colonel in the Israeli Air Force who resigned over the chaos he saw with the Palestinians, mm. and he refused to take a promotion where he was basically going to be running one of their camps. Mm. And he left. He left the Air Force, resigned, and moved to Canada to get away from what he was, quote-unquote, being forced to do. And so he was this fascinating guy. He was all systems and yet mm-hmm. questioned everything. It was mm-hmm. awesome to work with him. Mm-hmm. It drove me crazy because he questioned everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but he would listen, and then he would decide, and he would listen to the input, whether it's from us or his staff. In fact, I, I seem to recall this cheesecake recipe that's now won all these awards and made him all this money, clearly, came from one of his staff. I'm pretty sure oh, it wow. came from one of his oh, staff. Wow. It didn't come from us. That is so, amazing. so to me, that was just like a little, like a little happy uh, entrepreneur story that when I saw of it, course. Trees Organic, if you're anyone in the Vancouver area, Trees Organic, best cheesecake in Vancouver, apparently. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, Tom, we briefly talked about you launching a brand new franchise. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, tell me, where, where, why did you decide to launch this and where did the concept come from? Well, um, thank you for asking. It, it, I haven't been launching a franchise now for, for gosh, since 2007. So what is that, 14 years, 14 going on 15 years. And uh, I had met this incredible entrepreneur, uh, investment uh, financier, chartered accountant from London at one of our strategic alliance deal-making events. We run these three times a year. We call them the, the world's largest deal-making events. We get entrepreneurs together from all over the world in cyberspace and we do deals and I met this guy and we hit it off and we didn't do any deals, but we just hit it off. We had a, we had a values alignment. You know, sometimes when you meet people and there's a values alignment and you like, we got to find something to do. Like, it's just like, mm-hmm. you gotta, cause you know, it's such an alignment. Right. Well, that's what the mm-hmm. case is with, with Simon, Simon Headley from London, Simon Headley. And uh, we were talking a few months later, brainstorming different ideas and right now, my primary business is helping people package their wisdom and knowledge and sell it through high-ticket programs that guarantee results. Mm-hmm. So most of the conversation was, well, you should, you know, with all that wisdom, you should be doing this, or you should be doing this, or you should be doing this. And none of it was resonating with him. And we were on Zoom, so I could see his face. I could see. It was just like it wasn't, it wasn't exciting him at all mm-hmm. to want to spread his wisdom and knowledge. He'd been doing that for 20 years. And so I finally noticed and I said, Simon, 
none of this is making a difference to you. What do you really want to do? And he's like, I want to do something real, like bricks and mortar, like, like physical stuff. And I go, well, you know, that's higher risk, right? He says, yeah, yeah, I understand that. But done right, it's also higher reward for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so we started a series of sessions brainstorming, and there was an idea that was part of a project I was involved in two decades before that didn't launch for a bunch of reasons. And I threw it out to him one day, and, and I said, how about this thing? And I told him the idea. And I said, I said picture Starbucks coffee meets uh, Planet Fitness meets Dave and Buster's and he didn't wow. know what Dave and Buster's was. So I explained Dave and Buster's and he, of course he knew Starbucks, even in Britain, they know Starbucks and uh, planet fitness, you know, he understood the general concept. So I said, just mix these three together. And uh, you know, we call these things golf cafes and he goes, Oh, tell me more, tell me more. And so we, I went through the whole model, described all the parts and pieces. And uh, a month later we decided we're going to do it. We're going to put it all together we're going to develop this and we're going to take it across the globe. The difference is I'm now like decades more experienced than I was before when I had that mm-hmm. idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. And part of my background, I, built, I don't know if you know, I built 187 coffee bars. So I, I literally built more independent coffee bars than any human on planet earth. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I had that vast experience and then we were involved in a golf project. We we're going to combine the two with golf simulators and, and, and make it sort of like a, like a poor man's golf and country club. But or as I lovingly say now, a place for the guys to hang out while their wives go shop at the shopping centers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, oh, I get that. I understand that. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. what we're doing. We're calling it Lynx Golf Cafe. And uh, the difference from back then is I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the capital to, to fund it well. We were pre-selling the idea on a napkin. And we had 100 franchises awarded in six months. Wow. Wow. None were built. None were built. And you know how much that work that is. Like you, you really know how much work that is. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our, and our FDD, you'd love it. Our FDD was like, no locations, no history, no track record, <laughs> likely to fail. Like we had properly <laughs> documented it, right? It was the funniest FDD I'd ever put together because I wanted to make sure we were fully transparent. I had some partners on it and I wanted to make sure. And, uh, we folded it into a brand that we public on the Toronto Stock Exchange around large indoor golf training centers, brought a CEO on board to run it as the company went public, and he decided to ice the whole brand. And, mm. you know, I was already out, set back while he was running things, and it turns out he was just biding time while he raised a bunch of capital to buy a large restaurant chain uh, for $100 million and uh, left the company, and it got delisted, like literally mm. overnight. Mm. So the whole idea got put on hold, and I went – Okay, let's restart this idea. See, I have a belief system of franchising. There's only three things you can truly promise someone when you sell a franchise, right? And I, I know you're going to be taking a break, so do you want to take a break, come back, we can talk about those three things, or should we go right yeah, into Yeah, let me cool. take a quick break. This is a great time to do that. Uh, so, folks, I'm going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, Tom's going to tell us those three things that franchises offer. We'll be right back after this break. House Talk Radio. Join Tony and Wendy Gambone on House Talk Radio, where they talk all things house. From tips on home repairs and remodeling to best practices on buying and selling a home, hiring contractors, home loans, and insurance, as well as decorating ideas and how to get the most bang for your buck. If you would like more information about House Talk Radio, go to housetalkradio.com. Tune in every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. to Tough Talk Christian Radio with Tony Gambone. Tough Talk Christian Radio is for those who want to share and receive expressions of faith that will help you take the next step in your relationship with Christ. Listen in to hear from others about their experiences of faith and the love of Christ. Call in to share your experiences at 347-989-1363. Learn more by going to toughtalkchristianradio.com. Are you dreaming of owning your own business but just don't know where to begin? The wait is now over. Linda Ballesteros is a catalyst to becoming a business owner through franchising. Whether you are looking to create a living that will allow you to leave corporate America, 
change your lifestyle, allowing you to enjoy the fun things in life, or if you're looking to build a legacy that will support your family for years to come. Contact Linda today to start the process of being your own boss. Linda at EmpowerFranchiseConsulting.com, 832-640-4922. Hey folks, welcome back to All Things Franchising. Linda Ballesteros here, and my guest today is Tom Matson, and we left you with a cliffhanger. So Tom is getting ready to share with us those three things that franchises offer. Yeah, and it's even more than that. I, I actually think this is the only three things they can promise you. And, and this is, you know, whether you're selling McDonald's or you're selling a startup, to me, these are the three things. The first one, if it's done right, buying power, right? You know, that's one of the advantages of a franchise. And when I say if it's done right, you know what I mean, Linda. Some franchisors mm-hmm. share buying power. Some franchisors pass on all the buying power. And some franchisors keep all the buying power. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's fortunately disclosed in the FDD. At least the, the, the practice is disclosed in there. Um, but, you know, done right, there's tremendous buying power that comes with a, a brand that's purchasing in bulk. And, and you can save 20, 30, 40% on some of your operating supplies, and that can really improve your margins. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember when I was a young assistant manager at time. If McDonald's was a country, they would be the 10th largest buyer of Coca-Cola by nations in the world. Wow. That's how much Coke syrup they bought back at that point. And uh, I remembered because when I went out on my own, I opened my first fast food restaurant on my own, I was paying four times as much ounce for ounce for Coke syrup. <laughs> wow. And I would go to my rep and I would say, no, 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 you're gouging me, man. Like, I know what this <laughs> stuff costs. And he's like, no, no, that's our best deal. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We used to pay this and this. And I go, where was that? He says, where was that? I go, oh, McDonald's. He goes, oh, McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you bought that much syrup, we would give you that price too, Tom. Yeah, <laughs> and here yeah, I was, this one funny. location operation, buying some post mix, and I thought I could negotiate. <laughs> no, you're not McDonald's. So buying power, right? Number one. Number, number two is a system to make it easier, mm-hmm. right? What are all the operations and training manuals supposed to be about? They're about a system to make it easier, right? They're about having your, you know, as I used to joke when I was at McDonald's, having 17-year-old part-time staff run a multi-million dollar business because that's what the crew chiefs were at McDonald's. Now they call them crew coordinators, but they were 17 years old. They'd have a year and a half experience at a McDonald's and they were running the show. They got 30 staff going and they're running the shift like a superstar. The good ones, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what, you know, and they had this 1200 page operations, a training manual back then, uh, 1200 pages. I remember they had nine pages on how to fire staff, nine wow. pages on how to fire staff. And everyone would assume it was, you know, for liability reasons, but most of that was covered in one page. They actually thought, this is how brilliant they are, they thought that firing staff meant, right, because basically, what did Jim Rohn say? If you, if, you, uh, if, you, uh, if you smile and hustle, instead of 3 bucks an hour, you made three fifteen an hour at McDonald's, right, back in his mm-hmm. day. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you can smile and hustle, you can survive McDonald's, right? You don't need a lot of skills coming in. Uh, so McDonald's realized that if you're being fired other than for theft, right, if you just weren't cutting it, there was a lot of fast food in your future. <laughs> and so yeah. they saw firing staff as a client retention strategy. Like uh, just uh-huh. so brilliant. If you think about mm-hmm. it on a macro sense, and it's the reason why it's one of two reasons why they're still the number one brand in the burger space and Burger King and Wendy's and the rest of them will never catch them because they're, they're just, they're so innovative in the way they think about something like that. Like mm-hmm. letting someone go is a retention strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We want them to mm-hmm. love us, not hate us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I heard somewhere recently that one in five North Americans had worked for McDonald's at some point. That's amazing. Well, that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of people. So systems, right? Systems to make it easier. And, and that's the whole point of having operations, training manuals and videos and checklists and processes, right? You have systems to make it easier. And then the third is increasing the odds of success with good marketing. Uh, and I call it that on purpose because even, I mean, there are a handful of franchises that actually guarantee this. The vast majority don't guarantee financial success. Um, 
the vast majority don't. But what they can do, if they do it right, is they can increase the odds, mm-hmm. right? They can have proven systems. They can have good, low-cost, affordable guerrilla marketing strategies. They can train their people on how to build high-trust relationships. They can, they can do some of the, you know, guerrilla marketing fundamentals that are so important and some of the macro branding lead gen, you know, contest strategies that are really well done in a franchise if you do it right. Um, because you've got the buying power of the whole group behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So I call it increase the odds of success because even the most successful brands have some failures. They have mm-hmm. some failures. And, and you know that because you've been in the space a long time. But, you know, there are people out there who still believe there's never been a McDonald's that's gone under. Well, there has. Right. <laughs> there has. Right. They just don't, you know, there's not a lot of them and they don't shout it from the rooftops. And it's pretty rare but it happens. It mm-hmm. happens. Um, and, and so, you know, something that's a, you know, the closest I've seen to a money-making machine, a well-run McDonald's, um, has had failures. So mm-hmm. what about the rest of us, right? There's going to be mm-hmm. businesses that go under. Mm-hmm. So you, you, what you can offer is you can increase the odds. And by the way, I believe startups can do that. Emerging franchises can do that. And, of course, yeah. established brands can do that. They just have to actually want to do that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? They have to develop the strategies, develop the methodologies to do that, and then make them, you know, teach them in a way that inspires people to try it rather than forces people to use it, um, which is one of the things I noticed as I got more experienced in dealing with franchisors is that a lot of them had really good systems of marketing that the individual franchisees just weren't using. Mm-hmm. And I would look mm-hmm. at that and I go, that doesn't make sense. This is like really good. I would dig in and I would see like a referral program. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite strategies for increasing sales. And and when I worked with independent stores, I would always put a referral program in place and 30% increase in one month is usually the norm. And so I would always look for that. And occasionally I would see a franchisor that had a great referral program. And the franchisee who was my client didn't know about it or if he knew about it, wasn't using it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, why are you not using this? And and you know, if if they chose not to use it, it's usually because it was like perceived to be forced on them. Mm. And and well, that's you know, is that their fault? Partly, is that the franchisor's fault? Partly, probably the regional manager's fault more than anything. If you think about it, <laughs> normally, right? Because yeah. they're the ones that yeah. are motivating them or inspiring them to follow the system. But you know, my my point of view was, I don't care whose fault it is. It's a good system. Let's use it. Right. Let's test right. it. Let's get it out there. Now, Tom, do you also notice sometimes when uh, someone becomes a franchisee, um, and this is something I really coach my clients on, is that you still have to build the business. Just because you hang the shingle out that has that brand on it, you still have to be a participant here. It is, uh, unless it's a McDonald's, where once those, once the yellow the golden arches go up. Everybody knows what that's about. But for someone brand new becoming a franchisee, uh, there's still work involved, isn't it? Totally. And, and I will tell you, because I had the pleasure of working for one of the top independent franchisees in McDonald's when I was 16, 17, 18, and then the largest franchisee in the world as a young man, as a manager in Calgary, you're so I had a chance to see it from some of the best case studies in McDonald's world from a franchisee perspective. And those people worked it. <laughs> okay? mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. people worked it. Now, what they were doing often was different. I remember Bill Mitchell. He owned the Saskatoon McDonald's at the time. There were four of them he had. And I later learned from the P&L perspective, they're some of the most profitable operations in Canada and Canada has one of the most profitable McDonald's regions in the world in terms of operating profit. So, I mean, this was one of the most profitable operators in the whole planet of McDonald's. And he spent almost all of his time motivating his staff and motivating his assistant managers. Right. Interesting. Right. He wasn't the general managers. He knew by then they were awesome and his job mm-hmm. wasn't to motivate them, but he would be like, he would be like a, uh, 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 a, a pump-up man for the assistant yeah. managers and the staff. And everybody yeah. knew Mr. Mitchell, Mr. Mitchell. When Mr. Mitchell came by, we were all like, Mr. Mitchell, Mr. Mitchell. And he put yeah. a – I remember this distinctly. This was years ago, Linda. He put a program in place where if you came up with a good idea, 
in the ideas box and we used it, you got five dollars. <laughs> and you know, this was back when minimum wage was probably four dollars. Yeah. And I remember the first time they used one of my ideas, because I was putting ideas in that box every week, okay? <laughs> the first time they used one of my ideas, I was like, I had won the lottery. I was yeah. so excited. And then Mr. Mitchell came by and said, Tom, thank you for your idea on oh X, Y. We're, mm. we're putting it into practice. I so appreciate the suggestion. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's more than 10 years later. <laughs> okay. It's way more than 10 years later. And I still, every time I think of Bill Mitchell, I smile, I glow because sure. that's the type of man he was, but that was work. He was putting in the hours. So yeah. even, even when established brands, the work might be different where you put your efforts different, but you're absolutely right. Any startup is a brand new business. You've got all sorts of risk factors. And there's operating risks, there's food cost risks or product cost risks, there's marketing risks, there's lead generation, lead conversion risks, there's money management risks. You know, for years, I was really good at making money. I was terrible at managing it. And, mm-hmm. and that's not a good combination for an entrepreneur. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's money management risks, right? There's all these risks. And, and part of our job, and I believe, anyhow, for those of us that are coaching entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs, part of our job is to make sure they go in with their eyes open. They have the support systems around them, right? Whether it's from someone directly like you, which is just awesome to hear, um, or we encourage them to hire someone to help them out, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they need that. We need that as entrepreneurs. We need that. We need the ability to bounce ideas off people that we would otherwise, you know, miss, right? right. And, and right. that iterative process of test measure Improve, test, measure, improve, test, measure, improve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So critical. That, so critical. Absolutely. And, Tom, um, we are getting close to the end of the show here, uh, and I want to make sure that you give out your contact information, but I tell you what, uh, there is so much more ground for us to cover. I would love to have you back <laughs> on again so that we can continue this conversation if you would be open to that. Oh, I'd love to. I, I, you know, I used to do a lot of shows back when I was an active franchisor in this world, and I haven't, as I told you in the green room before we started, I haven't done this in, in, in years, but I'd love to because part of what – here's what I genuinely believe. Those of us that have gone before and have earned the stripes and, and, and you know, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe lost a lot of money, had a lot of stripes, we, we have a moral obligation to share those lessons yes. with people. Absolutely. Right? Because for those people listening in, here's the thing. You're going to learn these lessons. Yeah. So you're either going to learn it from Linda and I sharing it with you and other guests she has on <laughs> or, you know, for free because you're just listening in over the airways. Or you're going to learn the lesson the hard way and have to pay for it. So, I you know, that. yeah, that's a good idea. I'm quite, I'd be quite happy to do that. Would, would uh, gladly make it make time for you on that. One. Wonderful, that. wonderful. So, if someone's listening right now, Tom, and they really want to find out more about um, the services you offer, how they may be able to work with you, how would they contact you? Where would they find out more information about that? Great question. The easiest way today is just to go to LinkedIn um, and search Tom Masson, M-A-T-Z-E-N, M-A-T-Z-E-N for our Canadian and British friends. I'm bilingual. Linda, I speak Canadian and American. <laughs> okay. Fluently bilingual. <laughs> uh, M-A-T-Z-E-N, Tom, and there's only like six or seven of us in all of LinkedIn, um, and there's only one uh, that's in this world. They'll see right away. Connect with me on LinkedIn. There's a bunch of free resources. There's some some uh, deep dive trainings. We do a lot of master classes where we give back three-hour deep dive trainings on topics, and they'll see links to that. And uh, my contact info is there. My you know my speaker website and anything else they need to reach out to me. And and if they're if they if they love golf and they love making money, and they're looking to uh, to possibly explore that, they can go directly to our site, which will be. It's in, it's in preview mode now, but it'll be live in about a week as we record this, linksgolfcafe.com, L-I-N-K-S, then golf, then cafe.com. And, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll, uh, we'll have some fun together with some people. Wonderful. That sounds great. So uh, we're down to those final three questions. And the first one is, 
and I know that you've covered a lot of the, maybe some of this or touched on some of this in the interview, but the first question is, if there is someone listening who's considering purchasing a franchise, what would you suggest that they do to prepare for the process? I love this question. I love this question. So the first thing you got to do uh, is take advice from my old boss in the shopping center business. Uh, I used to work for the largest shopping center developer in Canada, and they were recruiting me to come work on the leasing side. And on the leasing side, you know, that's where they signed all the tenants and did everything. And I got called into the head office, and I got the big presentation by the senior VP, and, and the full core press was there to get me to come and quit the marketing side and come to leasing. And I uh, went through the whole presentation. I was very intrigued. And then he said at the very end, uh, Dick Badero Kane, I remember him now. He said, he said, son, he says, there's just two things you need to know that you can't trust with leasing agents. And I had my notebook out and I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Badero Kane, what are they? Since you can't trust the first thing they say and everything after that. <laughs> and he laughed and all the other hangers on in the office laughed and I kind of chuckled nervously. And I, I, I later on reflection, I was thinking, was this a character test? Was this a screen for my honor? No, he was actually being true about your typical leasing agent. Mm -hmm. And so my first advice is, and it's, it's the reality of decades in this space, assume everyone involved is lying to you in what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying become a cynic. I'm not saying, you know, charge them with, with misleading you. I'm saying just assume they are lying and that you have to prove it to yourself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when they say they have happy franchisees, get some names and talk to them. Right. You know, they may not give them out right in the beginning because that's stupid to give it out early in the process. But if you're seriously considering it and you've done your homework, they should, they should give out, happily give out names. You should also talk to disgruntled franchisees that have left the system, get the franchisor's story, their version of what happened, and talk to them. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if a franchisor won't let you do that, that probably tells you all you need to know. Right. <laughs> but right. you've got to assume, unfortunately, I've learned, you've got to assume that everyone involved is not telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. And if you do that and then do your own homework, and make an informed decision, because every brand has good, bad, and ugly. Every brand has good, bad, and ugly. That doesn't mean you don't do it. You know, the perfection doesn't exist. If you're waiting for perfection, good luck. You just want to know what you're getting into when you're getting into something. And to your question, your comment earlier, you need to know what work is going to take from you to make this succeed. Right. And if, if for example, you're on your own for marketing because the systems don't generate consistent, effective lead flow, well, that's fine. There's lots of people that can help you with that. You just got to know. <laughs> right. And you got to budget for that, right? You got to, when you're buying the business, you say, okay, I need half a million to start the business, and then I need 50000 in startup marketing. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Budget mm -hmm. for that. Right? Don't yeah. call someone like Linda or Tom when you have $0 left for that and go, I need all this help in this area, please. Uh, I don't have any money. It's too late, yeah. but I need yeah. help. Like that's, yeah. uh, we, we've all had those calls, Linda, right? We're, yeah. you know, we'll try our best, but you know, we got to feed our families too in that process. So that's, that, that's the, the single biggest thing. And then the second thing is as an entrepreneur, analyze it to say two or three years in, can this business run without me? Right. Because that's the difference between an entrepreneur, and a small business owner, small business owner, where you have to be there for it to succeed. Well, you're buying a job with economic risk. Mm -hmm. And that's the worst of both worlds, right? That that's the, the worst, worst of both worlds. worlds. Don't have a job with economic risk. Like, that's like crazy, <laughs> crazy, Bill. So, so is it possible? Not right away, not out of the box. But I remember when Great Clips went from 100 to 900 locations in seven years. And I talked to their senior VP of franchising. And I said, how did you do that? How did you go from 100 to 900 locations, I think it was, in seven years? He said, very simple. We made a conscious decision we would never sell to people who had cut hair for a living before. Uh, of course. I'm like, what, you, you're in the haircutting business. He said, yes, exactly. And we were selling to people that were in the haircutting business. And yeah. so they would get in and they would cut hair instead of run their business. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys are brilliant. <laughs> I was ready for that message. You know, you're not always ready for a message. I was ready for that message. I was like, wow. wow. And so they, they would only sell to people that would buy five locations minimum as an area development mm -hmm. package. 
and they had to promise never to cut hair in their salons. Wow. They had to promise, contractually it. promise. Like, I so, love it. So do that. That would be my, my sort of double whammy on, on question number one. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So the second question here is, what are two traits that make a successful franchisee? Ooh, so there's so many traits. And so to me, a successful franchisee, I'm going to define it this way, becomes a multi-unit operator working mm-hmm. on their business more than in their business. Mm-hmm. So that's my definition of a successful franchisee. And so right. the, the first trait is the ability to understand working on versus working in, right? I had the pleasure of working with Michael Gerber as Nemeth Mastery Coach for a number of years. And so I got, you know, inculcated in the best guy on that topic on the planet. But whether or not you understand his approach and whether or not you've read the E-Myth Revisited, and if you're a potential franchise buyer, it should be your very, very next purchase, the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Um, you want to think about, you know, working on the business. So what does that look like? That's like creating a system, creating a process, training, or training trainers to train as you start to grow, right? Mm-hmm. Like coming up with a way so that your business works with or without you, where you're not the most essential person to the business. That's number one, working on it, not in it, I would say. And then the second is, and some people are going to like this and some people aren't, is you got to be fanatic about the data. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a fanatical about the data. Like mm-hmm. it matters. Find out what your top seven or eight key success factors are, critical indicators. They have different terms in different industries for this. But they all, anyone that's been around more than a day and a half has the key, key terms. You know, I mentioned I built a lot of coffee bars. Well, one of the most critical factors wasn't food cost. People thought that would be, you know, so much better in a food, in a coffee business. Nope. Food and beverage, food and paper, 30, 35%, just like any other restaurant business. But what was better was labor productivity. Uh, sales per person hour, sales per man hour, the labor productivity, that made the difference between a coffee bar that made 100,000 profit and a coffee bar that made 50,000 profit. Wow. Well, there's probably people out there in the restaurant or coffee business who have no idea what I just said. And there's probably a bunch of other people going nodding their heads. Oh, yeah, baby, that really matters. Labor productivity, yep, yep, sales per man hour, right? And so you've you got to know what your critical success factors are and then you've got to be fanatical about measuring them. Um, right. And that is not a natural habit for people that aren't into numbers. But it's a crucial habit if you want to have profit left over. It's a crucial habit. So those are the two yeah. things I would say. Great, great advice there. Absolutely. And, Tom, the final question here is, uh, you've been in franchising a long time. So what do you see the future of franchising look like? Mm, wow. Um, uh, the Chinese uh, language has a caricature for uh, chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, the future of franchising is chaos. And, and in this context, the way the Chinese define chaos, they have two drawings, two images. One means danger and one means opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, how they, that's how the Chinese culture of 5,000 years defines chaos. I believe franchising is in chaos right now. Uh, And I think that chaos is going to go up. You know, things like COVID and all the implications of that, things like getting low interest or no interest uh, loans, large loans in the Mm -hmm. U.S. is causing its own form of chaos, isn't it, Linda? Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of these people... Like, I thought, I didn't think I had to pay it back. Well, yeah, <laughs> you have to pay it back. You have to pay it back. So, so what does that mean? If you're considering franchising, don't do it. No, not at all. It just means you need to go in with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. You need to go in with your eyes open. So, you know, take our golf cafe idea. Our primary locations will be major regional shopping centers, dead wings, close to parking access. Why? Because mm-hmm. we want people to bring the golf clubs in and out easily without damaging the shopping center. Mm-hmm. And dead wings in major regional malls are the cheapest place to be. Because <laughs> major regional malls are very expensive locations to rent. So we happen to have 
an idea that's perfectly positioned to benefit from the chaos that COVID has brought to the shopping center. COVID and Amazon have brought to the shopping center business. Mm-hmm. So you can you can have chaos and thrive, or you can have chaos and be put out of business. It Absolutely. all depends on you and your leadership team, right? Are you ready for it? Do you see the opportunities, right? The the, the restaurants that pivoted to delivery quickly, early, and well, they made more money. Absolutely. They made more money than running their business inside, right? It was mm-hmm. an incredible shift for them. So to me. You know, I'm getting mega – well, it's kind of a philosophical question, the future of franchising. But to me, it's chaos, and that mm-hmm. means there's danger and there's opportunity. And as entrepreneurs, we owe it to ourselves to make sure we're aware of both when we make mm-hmm. our decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I love it, Tom. You were spot on with that. So, again, we are down to the end of the show. One more time, Tom, if someone's listening and they want more information about you, where's the best place to go to get that? Best way to pop into LinkedIn and uh, just search Tom Matson M-A-T-Z-E-N. My name will pop up. Connect with me there. Happy to touch base and uh, begin a dialogue or have a conversation. Or even if you just want to bounce an idea off me, give me a shout. Happy to do that. Wonderful. Tom, I'm going to be reaching out soon so we can get you back on the show because I know we didn't even touch the tip of the iceberg. And there's Part so much two, more I'm so excited, Linda. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm super excited. <laughs> Same here. So thanks again for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Linda. So folks, you know, as Tom said, that there are there are risk, whether you're going into business for yourself, whether you are going into business, uh, you're purchasing a franchise, there are risk, but there are great opportunities to succeed and to build that legacy that maybe you would not have an opportunity to do if you were in a corporate business. So um, as always, I'm going to leave you with this quote. It goes like this. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game's winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. That is a quote by Michael Jordan. He's an NBA uh, legendary basketball MVP. So if you are concerned about failing, then think about Michael Jordan. He has elevated his game uh, leaps and bounds, and how did he do that? He did that by failing. Folks, thanks again for joining me on All Things Franchising, and we'll see you next time. Another great episode of All Things Franchising is now in the books. You can listen to past shows by following All Things Franchising on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure not to miss us next time when we bring you a brand new episode of All Things Franchising.